I have thought of myself as a pretty flexible person for most of my life. I kind of assumed that I was ready for life as it comes, you know, down for whatever interruptions arise, last minute invitations, love them. Take me to dinner, give me a deep conversation, I'm here for it, I'm ready to go. And this was my perception of myself. And um, as I get older and a bit more self-aware, I'm starting to notice that I'm not as flexible as I used to be. And it, it could be fairer to say that I maybe have never been as flexible as I thought that I was. I actually really hate when the unexpected happens. I really don't like a change in plans unless they're being canceled. I do love a canceled plan, but if you're interrupting a plan, I, I really struggle with this. Um, and, and I learned this, of course, in proximity to others, right? Because depending on who you're around really shapes the kinds of interruptions that you have throughout a day. So when I read this morning's text, all I could think of was how much unexpected activity was going on in this text. And I don't like unexpected activity. In fact, if you look at my Google Calendar, you'll see chunks of time slotted out that just read nothing. This is the time that I have allotted in my life for unexpected things to happen. This is the unplanned time. I have to make a plan in order to not have a plan. So I was very, very concerned as I was looking at this text because this day sounds so stressful to me. I mean, there's a lot happening in the sequence of short stories that Matthew frames as happening in a single day. And the thing that stood out to me the most as I reread this story over and over again was just how many interruptions there are. And in fact, as I keep rereading the story, I keep noticing more interruptions. First, we have an interrupted work day. Matthew's sitting there, doing his work, collecting his taxes, and Jesus comes along and he says, follow me. And Matthew does. And now this is probably the most frustrating aspect of this particular interruption is that there's like this momentum life decision happening and we get one verse about it. Like, come, follow me, okay. And it just feels like there's probably more going on than that. Then Jesus goes and he invites Matthew to dinner and they're sitting down reclining a table and all of a sudden, not one, not two, but three interruptions happen just during dinner. I don't know about you, but this doesn't happen quite as much now that we're not as glued to landlines. But for the kids in the room, we used to have this thing called landlines. And it was a phone that you just left on the wall of your house. And periodically, people would call. And if you weren't home, you just didn't get that call. 
And so people would call when they knew you were home. And what time was that? Dinner time, always, like clockwork. And I tell you, if you want an entertaining evening, be at my house when a teleprompter calls at dinner time and hear my dad answer the phone. It is amazing. He tries to interrupt their day back as much as he feels interrupted. <laughs> then, after dinner, Jesus is on route to respond to one of these interruptions, and a woman who's been bleeding grabs his coat. His interruption gets interrupted. That's a lot of interruptions for me. I'm exhausted just hearing about it. But if we can get past this kind of frenzy of the day and the rapidness with which all of these stories are unfolding, I think we'll see that each interruption kind of packs its own punch, pragmatically, socially, and theologically. Because nobody gets out of this story uninterrupted. Every single character that we meet is experiencing significant disruption, not just of their day, but of their lives. So our narrative opens with this moment, and it's captured in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. That is just a cue to us that this was an important moment. People thought we should know about it. So there's something happening here that the authors of the Gospels want us to notice. And in each of these stories, this account is almost identical. So the story of Jesus and the tax collector Goes, goes like this. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax collection station, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Now, in Mark and Luke, the account of the story labels the tax collector as Levi. But in Matthew's gospel, Matthew has identified himself as the tax collector waiting at the station. And there's a lot of debate as to why that is. Some people think it's Matthew kind of putting his signature on his gospel. I was left wondering if maybe Matthew picks this moment to ascribe his name to, because as a tax collector, it's the moment that he feels the most identification for what the particular call that's being made here feels like. And I have to wonder what is going on here. Like, what is happening? What is so compelling about Jesus' invitation that Matthew just gets up and goes? Right? Like, is it that Jesus' reputation has preceded him? Is it that there's something about Jesus' demeanor that's just really interesting? Is it that Matthew is filled with the Holy Spirit and he can't help but just move his feet? We have no idea. The authors have not told us. This drives me insane. Like, it's pretty important information. We have no idea what Matthew is thinking at this juncture where he's about to put his entire livelihood on the line to get up and move. And the interesting thing is he's not 
the only one. Because as the account goes on, Jesus is sitting at dinner in the house, many tax collectors. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat to recline at table with Jesus at dinner. Can you imagine sitting around your dinner table and all these people just start showing up? Tax collectors and sinners are flocking to Jesus. So this kind of leads me to think that maybe this story isn't really just about one man's interrupted work day. But that maybe this story is actually teasing out a total interruption to a social paradigm that has been in place. And we know that throughout Matthew, tax collectors are not seen in a positive way. So in my old job, we used to teach people this phrase. I want you to repeat it after me. Deviancy image juxtaposition. I'll say it one more time. Deviancy image juxtaposition. Say it back. Give it a word. It's as, it's as interesting as it sounds. So we used to talk about how people, groups in society get devalued. And one of the things that happens when people get devalued is deviancy image juxtaposition. Now juxtaposition is just when you put two things in close proximity to one another, right? I'm putting these things juxtaposed together, right? And deviancy image juxtaposition is when Someone gets surrounded by things, images, words that convey negative messages to show that that person is deviant. It's a deviancy image juxtaposition. Are you following me? Okay. Jesus, throughout Matthew, deviancy image juxtaposes tax collectors all the time. Several moments. When Jesus said, Love your neighbors. If you love the people who love you, I mean, even the tax collectors do that. You're not getting the sense that people are thinking too highly of tax collectors. And as I looked more into Matthew around tax collectors, tax collectors are often juxtaposed to harlots, to drunkards, to sinners. Very seldom do tax collectors just get their own moment in scripture. It's always he was hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. He was sitting with harlots and tax collectors, right? There's deviancy image juxtaposition going on. Now, that tells us that this is no small matter, that Jesus is sitting with tax collectors and sinners at dinner. We know that this is a shift in paradigm. Now, Here's the thing, I, how many of us have heard a message about how important it is that Jesus sat with tax collectors and sinners? Anyone? No one's heard this before? Yeah, right, like everyone has heard this before. I know I am not telling you anything new. It's just really interesting though, the response that he gets because immediately people start to have problems with this. 
the tax collectors are sitting there and immediately the Pharisees come by and they start asking questions about it, right? Why is this man eating with tax collectors and sinners? They're wondering to themselves, why is Jesus risking contamination by association with the unclean and the irreligious? Why is Jesus risking deviancy image juxtaposition with these tax collectors? And for the Pharisees who have been taught their whole lives to abide strictly by the law and by the purity codes of their time, this action is social suicide, especially for someone who's trying to be a religious leader. And if we think about it, it still is. And this is the thing that is kind of frustrating about this whole story. The reason we have to keep sharing this story about Jesus and tax collectors is because it's still a thing, isn't it? There are still people within our society that it's problematic to be seen with, to associate with, that there are impacts to associating with different kinds of people within our society. And as I say that, there are probably some that surface to your mind, depending on where you sit. So in a group this large, it may vary from person to person who we see as unclean. But society often dictates that. This month, there will be people who identify as Christians, who will show up at pride events throughout the country for the express purpose to proclaim loudly that queer people are unclean. It's the only reason they're there. And they will say it with billboards, and they'll say it with signs, and they'll say it with megaphones, and they'll say it while holding holy Bibles. Just to let us know who is clean and who is unclean. It's still going on. We haven't gotten past this dilemma. And the venom that they spew from their mouths will not be directed only toward queer people. It will be directed toward anyone who dares to associate with them. We know it. Because as we were working through our own discernment process, we heard concerns articulated, things like, well, what will people say? What will my loved ones say if I go to a church that's open and affirming? What will other congregations say if I go to a church like this? What will our denomination say to us if we become open and affirming? What will we say if people start asking us questions? We're still concerned about this stuff. Why are you eating with sex workers, with activists, with the poor, with the undocumented? Why are you eating with the addicted and the supremacists? Why are you eating with the hypocrites and the liars, with the liberals or the conservatives? Why are you eating with the rich 
Why are you eating with LGBTQ people? Why are you eating with canceled people? With bigots, with racists, with ethnic minorities? Why are you eating with these people? With whoever it is that the world or the church has deemed as unclean, why? And Jesus overhears them talking, and he gives two answers. The first is a Greek proverb. That those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Now we know this because um, if a doctor goes into work today, and they only meet with people who are not sick, that's a really boring day for that doctor. In fact, just last week at the retreat, we were sitting with a doctor, and he was saying how when he traveled outside of the country, he was really hoping to see some malaria. Right? <laughs> like, doctors want to be with sick people, and not just your run-of-the-mill flu. They want to be with the people who need their help. And that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to be where his presence matters, to bring healing, to comfort afflictions. And then the second answer that he offers is from the prophet Hosea. He says, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Isaiah 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, in the book of Hosea, there are sections where the prophet is telling the people to just stop offering sacrifices. Just stop. Because their conduct and their hearts were so far from the ethos and values of what their faith called of them, that God was like, just, just stop. I don't really want your sacrifices. I really just want your hearts. Because God isn't interested in a ritual unless there's meaning in it. And Jesus being questions offered this story of God interrupting. He's interrupting the sacrifice, and Jesus is interrupting this perception within the Pharisees that there are clean people and there are unclean people. And it's striking to me that after thousands of years, so many within the church are still working so hard just to get people to stop sinning. Has anyone experienced that in the church? Like that the primary function of our time together was just to learn how to not sin, how to not have lustful thoughts. If you were up in the 90s, you had a lot of that. How to not be drinking, how to not be playing cards, because who knows what that would lead to. Don't go to see the movies, right? Like we need to set ourselves apart. We need to be holy, 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 pure, pure, pure. And it's just so strange that that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is concerned about at all. Not in this section. And often this focus on purity comes at the expense of what Jesus is really trying to convey, which is mercy. So I'm not up here 
for those of you who, who might mishear me, I'm not up here saying like, yes, please go sin. <laughs> if that's what you take away, you weren't listening. And that's not on me. But don't worry so much about purity at the expense of exuding mercy. So we've taken in that message, haven't we? So we've kept our shortcomings at bay. We've hidden them. We've kept them close to our chest. We've pretended they're not there. We've brushed them under the rug. We've worked really hard to distract people by pointing out other people's shortcomings so that they don't see ours. And we've forgotten that Jesus didn't come to be with healthy people. He came to be with the sick. Not for righteous, but for sinners. It's in this way that Jesus serves as the ultimate interruption. In each story in today's reading, Jesus is being interrupted by people who have been seen as ritually impure and morally unclean. He's sitting with the unclean. His cloak is grabbed by a woman who's seen as unclean. He's asked to touch the body of a dead girl, and in Jewish culture, unclean. But the interruption that really takes the cake in our passage today is this. Jesus isn't worried about being infected by the uncleanliness of other people. He doesn't care about how ritual uncleanliness, sin, reputation will impede him. But rather he's concerned about infecting others. He's concerned that mercy would permeate in the people that he's around. Permeate the hearts. Permeate their bodies. And in Matthew, it does. A woman stops bleeding after 12 years of ostracization and agony. A dead girl takes a breath. And tax collectors who have been kept away from society, who have been degraded, who have been disgusted, are welcomed in for companionship. Mercy is contagious. So from wherever you are standing, friends, hear this good news today. Jesus came to interrupt the world. And the interruption is mercy. Amen.